Now concerning the things whereof he wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, nevertheless to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. But I speak this by permission, and not of commandment. For I would that all men were even as I myself. But every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner, and another after that. I say therefore to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn. And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. But, and if she depart, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband. And let not the husband put away his wife. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband, else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? But as God hath distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called every one, so let him walk. And so ordain I in all churches. Is any man called being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Is any called in uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but the keeping of the commandments of God. Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. Art thou called being a servant? Care not for it. But if thou mayest be made free, use it rather. For he that is called in the Lord being a servant is the Lord's freeman. Likewise also he that is called being free is Christ's servant. Ye are bought with a price. Be not ye the servants of men. Brethren, let every man wherein he is called therein abide with God. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment of the Lord, Yet I give my judgment as one that hath obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful. 
I suppose, therefore, that this is good for the present distress. I say that it is good for a man so to be. Art thou bound into a wife? Seek not to be loosed. Art thou loosed from a wife? Seek not a wife. But, and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. And if a virgin marry, she hath not sinned. Nevertheless, such shall have trouble in the flesh, but I spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time is short. It remaineth that both they that have wives be as though they had none. And they that weep as though they wept not. And they that rejoice as though they rejoice not. And they that buy as though they possessed not. And they that use this world as not abusing it. For the fashion of this world passeth away. But I would have you without carefulness. He that is unmarried careth for the things that belong to the Lord. How he may please the Lord. But he that is married careth for the things that are of the world. How he may please his wife. There is difference also between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman careth for the things of the Lord, that she may be holy, both in body and in spirit. But she that is married careth for the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I speak for your own profit, not that I may cast a snare upon you, but for that which is comely, and that ye may attend upon the Lord without distraction. But if any man think that he behaveth himself uncomely toward his virgin, if she pass the flower of her age, and need so require, let him do what he will, he sinneth not, let them marry. Nevertheless, he that standeth steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but hath power over his own will, and hath so decreed in his heart that he will keep his virgin, doeth well. So then he that giveth her in marriage doeth well, but he that giveth her not in marriage doeth better. The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will, only in the Lord. But she is happier if she, if she so abide after my judgment. And I think also that I have the Spirit of God. The Lord bless both the reading of his word and the preaching of his word this Lord's Day. And I invite you to take your Bibles if you would follow along. And our text this Lord's Day is found in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 8. Where we find these words. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. One of the biblical truths hated most by modern man is the natural corruption of all human beings. Not only the natural corruption of adults, but even the natural corruption of infants. The heretic Pelagius argued against Augustine in the third century that every man is blameless from birth. 
And those who are corrupt are corrupt due to their own decision, due to their own choice to follow that which is evil or to do that which is evil. Pelagius argued that no one is born with a sinful, corrupt nature that makes him guilty before God. This view seems to have become the view of the general masses today. Even professing Christian churches today speak of a mysterious age of accountability, which incidentally is never taught in the scriptures, before which time a child, so it is said, stands guiltless before God, but after which time a child is a guilty sinner before God. Psychologists and, and sociologists blame the evil within man upon various causes, the social class into which one is born, or the negative influence of parents or other significant people in the child's life, or the environment in which he grew up, or, the, or even genetic disorders. Since it should be obvious to all men that none of us are perfect and sinless, even according to our own standards of right and wrong, whether in our thoughts or our words or our deeds, the question must be answered. What is the cause of the evil within man? For in finding the cause of the evil within man, we will also find the cause of the salvation of man from this evil. From our text in Proverbs 15.8, let us consider the following two questions. First of all, why is the sacrifice of the wicked an abomination to the Lord? And the second question we'd like to answer is this. Why is the prayer of the upright a delight to the Lord? Let us then consider the first question. Why is the sacrifice of the wicked an abomination to the Lord? The word sacrifice that is used here in Proverbs 15.8 may refer to the offering of an animal or food or of drink as an act of worship to either Jehovah God, the one true living God, or it may refer to sacrifices offered to false gods. The particular word that is used here doesn't distinguish by the word itself to whom the sacrifice is made. It may be made to the true God or it may be made to false gods. And it is important that we understand to whom the sacrifice of the wicked is made in our text so that we can understand why it is condemned by God. Well, there are two possibilities that present themselves to us at this point. First of all, is the sacrifice of the wicked in Proverbs 15.8 an act of worship offered to some creature or to some false god. Certainly, any time worship is offered to a mere creature, whether to an image, whether to a cross, whether to a human being, dead or alive, 
or whether to an angel, or whether worship is offered to any God other than the one true living God that is revealed in the scriptures, that sacrifice as an act of worship is an abomination to the Lord. There's no question about that. The Bible teaches that from beginning to end. Such an act of worship violates the very words of the Lord Jesus spoken to Satan. When Satan bargained with Christ to worship him, Jesus, you'll remember, said to Satan, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Matthew 4.10 For only our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is worthy of our religious worship. No doubt it is an abomination to the Lord for any human being to offer a sacrifice or to offer worship to anyone or anything other than the one true living God revealed in the Bible. But I would submit that the intent of the Holy Spirit at this point in Proverbs 15.8 is not simply to condemn the worship of creatures rather than that of the Creator, or to condemn the worship of false gods rather than the one true living God. So that brings us to the second possibility of what this sacrifice of the wicked is. Or, secondly, is the sacrifice of the wicked a sacrifice or outward act of worship offered to the one true living God but offered by one whose heart in life has not been cleansed by the Lord Jesus Christ, and whose life faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for eternal salvation is dead. This, I would submit, is the intent of the Holy Spirit at this point. The abomination here spoken of is the outward show of worship found in religious hypocrites who go through the motions of sacrifice but whose hearts are far from the Lord. They profess the Lord by their acts of worship, by the sacrifices which they offer to him. But they are dead in their trespasses and sins. For they have not yet come to see their sin as deserving the eternal condemnation of God in hell. And since they do not see that they are drowning in a sea of their own sin and corruption, they do not see that only Jesus Christ can save and rescue them by forgiving them all of their sin and becoming their righteousness. And so they continue to offer their sacrifices, believing that God will be pleased with them and accept them because of their many sacrifices of worship and good works. This seems to be the intent of the Holy Spirit. For the contrast is made in Proverbs 15.8. The contrast that is made is between outward public acts of worship, that is the sacrifices offered to God on the part of the wicked, and inward private acts of worship, that is prayers offered to God on the part of those who are righteous. That's the contrast. Dear ones, God abominates. The sacrifice, listen closely, God abominates the sacrifice of all those who profess faith in God like King Saul, but whose heart was bent on disobeying God. 
God told Saul to destroy all of the animals gathered from the conquest of the Amalekites to leave none alive. But he kept back some of the animals. So he said to sacrifice them. You see, God did not abominate the sacrifice of Saul because he offered it to a creature. He didn't abominate the sacrifice of Saul because he offered it to another god, but because his heart was far from the Lord. His heart was not cleansed and purged of sin. Because this sacrifice was an attempt on Saul's part to cover up his rebellion against God and his disobedience against God. You remember that God spoke to King Saul through Samuel these sobering words which speak to us all today in 1 Samuel 15:22. Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. Consider likewise, dear ones, the piercing words of the Lord our God through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11 through 15. There we read God speaking through, uh, through the prophet Isaiah, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? Saith the Lord, I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he-goats. When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. And here's the reason why. Your hands are full of blood. Your heart has not been changed. You have not been cleansed. You have not come to the Lord your God confessing your sin and your need of Him, but you simply continue to go through the motions of worship while your heart is far from the Lord. Dear ones, in this passage, there is nothing wrong with the sacrifices or the other acts of worship in and of themselves. God doesn't state that there's something inherently wrong with, with the sacrifices or the solemn feasts which they are keeping. They are not condemned because they were offered to some creature, to some false god. God found no fault with what was brought to him, but rather with who brought the sacrifice to him. For these religious hypocrites did not humble themselves before the Lord, 
confessing their sin to Him, and trusting in the Lord alone as their righteousness and as their only hope of eternal salvation. Rather, they look to their acts of worship as their righteousness and as their hope of eternal salvation. This is what God abominates, dear ones. This is what God hates and despises in the sacrifice of the wicked. The corruption of pride and self-righteousness within the religious hypocrite. And so, why does God abominate the sacrifice of the wicked? Because all such sacrifices proceed from an evil heart, which declares not the righteousness of God, but rather declares the righteousness of man. For if offering to God the outward acts of worship which he has commanded in his written word meets with his abomination, as we find in these passages, they brought what God said to bring, but it meets with his abomination. If that is the case, it cannot be the act of worship itself that pollutes and corrupts the sacrifice. It must be the offerer and not that which is offered. It is the corruption of man, the self-glorying of man, the self-righteousness of man that pollutes the sacrifice that is offered. And this corruption of man's nature is a part of every man by nature, bar none. The Lord Jesus Christ alone accepted. The one true living God has revealed the cause of the evil within man in the Holy Scripture. And natural man, the masses of people don't like to hear this, of course. But the living God has revealed the true source, the cause of the evil within man. Which clearly teaches that all descendants of Adam, by ordinary generation, were bound up in the lot of Adam by way of a covenant God made with Adam in the Garden of Eden, which we know as the covenant of works. Had Adam kept that original covenant and not sinned by having eaten the forbidden fruit, he would have kept that covenant not only for himself, but would have secured righteousness and life for all of his descendants. But he didn't keep it. He fell into sin and all his descendants by ordinary generation fell with him and in him. The consequence of that broken covenant, dear ones, was the imputation or crediting of that sin of Adam to all of Adam's descendants and the corruption of nature to all of Adam's descendants. The Lord Jesus Christ alone accepted Death was the curse which the Holy God pronounced upon Adam and all of his descendants. Death, not only physical death, but spiritual death. Being dead in our trespasses and sins and having no communion with God. Being separated from God. And everlasting death. Eternal death in hell. These are the consequences of sin which come from Adam and fall upon all of Adam's descendants. Thus, if death, dear ones, is, is the wages of sin, as taught in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, then why do infants die? 
Why do infants die? Because of the sin that is theirs through Adam. 1 Corinthians 15.22 As in Adam all die. Infants wouldn't die if they had not been imputed the sin of Adam and if they had not received as well a sinful nature, a corrupt nature at the moment of conception. David very clearly says, in sin did my mother conceive me at the point of conception. The death of adults as well as infants, dear ones, proves the universality of sin and the corruption of sin. But an objection is raised at this point to the effect that using the same argument, we might also conclude that Christ was a sinner since he died. But dear ones, Christ died not for his own sin. The glory of Christ's death, he did not die for his own sin, for he was sinless. But he died for the sins of his people whose sins were imputed to him. Let us heed, therefore, the warning of God for us and our children as found in Jeremiah 17.9. The heart, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Let us hear God's evaluation of man's sinful condition. Can man do anything to save himself by his sacrifices or good works? Listen to what God says. There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that seeketh after God. There is nothing that man can do by his sacrifices, by his acts of worship, by his good deeds or works to find favor or acceptance with a holy God. There is nothing that man can do to save himself for he is like a man drowning in the ocean hundreds of miles from land. He will perish in his sin. He will perish in everlasting death if salvation depends upon himself. He cannot trust in his own works, just like that drowning man can't trust in his own works to save him. He, can't, uh, he cannot trust in his own strength. He cannot trust in his own abilities or in his own sacrifices that he may make. He must look to a Savior outside of himself, even the Lord Jesus Christ, to save him. And such is the condition of all human beings apart from Jesus Christ. And this is why, this is why the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Well, we come to the second question. The second question is this. Why is the prayer of the righteous or the prayer of the upright a delight to the Lord? Well, the contrast is now complete between the wicked and the righteous from our text. Just as it is not the sacrifice in and of itself that is offered to God by the wicked that God abominates, so it is not the prayer in and of itself that is offered to him by the righteous that God herein delights. It is the condition of the man of which God disapproves or approves in both cases. 
the wicked or the righteous. The most conspicuous and outward acts of worship will not please God if one is wicked in his heart. Whereas the most simple and inward acts of worship will please God if one is righteous. Since we have already spent time showing that all men are wicked by nature due to the sin of Adam and therefore under the wrath and curse of God, how does one become righteous? How does one become righteous? Well, first of all, it is not by his baptism that he becomes righteous. It is not by his efforts, by his good works, or by his sacrifices that he makes himself righteous before God. For Romans 3.20 says, Therefore by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Nothing that we can do that we would deem to be a good work or according to God's commandments or laws can make us righteous in the sight of God. Nothing. Secondly, it is not by his parents. It is not by those with whom he is associated, in other words. It is not by his church. It is not by his minister or by his priest that one can be made righteous before God. For Christ alone, not the minister, not the church, not the parents, not the priest, Christ alone has died for sinners and offers himself to even the chief of sinners. According to Paul in 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief, Paul says. Christ, Paul says, saved me, the chief of sinners. And if he can save me, Paul is in, implying, the chief of sinners, he can save you. He can save you. That's what Christ came to accomplish. Thirdly, it is not by his sincerity or good intentions that one can make himself righteous before a holy God. For Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. There are many ways which men today proclaim seem right. But God says, that is not just because it seems right, just because someone has good intentions, just because someone is sincere, doesn't mean they're on the right way, the right path. For Jesus Christ alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man cometh to the Father but by him. Well, if it is not by any of these that we become righteous, what is it by way of or by means of? It is the free and sovereign work of God to make those who are dead in their sins and trespasses alive and to give to them faith in Jesus Christ and to give to them all other graces that they need in this life. According to Ephesians chapter 2, Verses 4 and 5, the Apostle Paul clearly declares, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us, that is, made us alive, 
together with Christ, by grace ye are saved. We have no more to do with our own spiritual resurrection from the grave of our sin and corruption than did Lazarus from his physical grave. Christ called out to Lazarus, come forth. And he was given life to come forth to Jesus Christ, to obey Christ. Christ called one day to Greg Price and said, come forth. And I was given life and faith to come to Jesus Christ. And all of those who come to Christ come the same way. Because Christ called you first unto himself. It is by faith alone, dear ones, in Jesus Christ who fulfilled not some of the demands of the law, but all of the demands of the law, which you and I could not keep, and who suffered an infinite amount of God's wrath upon the cross for the sins of those who are ungodly, that one is declared righteous before God. And all those who trust in Christ alone for their eternal salvation persevere in a living faith that is manifested by loving obedience to Christ in spite of their sins in spite of their weaknesses and their frailties falling into sin they persevere in trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ Proverbs chapter 14 verse 16 speaks of the righteous who fall seven times and yet they rise up again seven times or it could have said 70 times seven times the point is They continue to fall. Yes, the righteous continue to fall, but they do not stay and remain in their sin. They confess their sin. They are restored to the Lord Jesus Christ. They delight in obeying Him in spite of their weaknesses. The wicked fall into sin, and there they remain. And there they remain. There is no help for the wicked as long as he continues to see himself as the one who must save himself. He will perish in the ocean of his sea, or the ocean of his sin and corruption. Dear ones, the voice of the Lord, as we come to a conclusion, the voice of the Lord has not gone out with this message merely to the Israelites living at the time of Solomon or those living at the time of Isaiah. His voice goes out to us today as well. Why do we offer to the Lord our sacrifices of worship? Is it to cover up our rebellion against the Lord? Is it to earn the favor and the acceptance of God? Is it to salve a guilty conscience? Have our outward acts of worship become our boasting and our pride in which we have put our faith? If so, God says, I abominate your sacrifices. I hate them and I despise them. Dear ones, outward acts of worship, outward acts of worship are not the object of our faith. God alone, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the object of our faith. Outward acts of worship cannot remove from us guilt and the power of sin. Only Christ can do that. God has appointed such ordinances as baptism, the Lord's Supper, the reading of Holy Scripture, fasting and prayer, 
the Sabbath day, secret worship and family worship, and our solemn covenants and giving to the poor and the needy. He's established these ordinances. But these are each one means by which our faith is strengthened. They are not the object of our faith in which we trust for our salvation. We are never to rest in them as our righteousness or as our hope of eternal salvation. Yes, dear ones, we are to offer our own lives as living sacrifices to the Lord according to Romans 12.1. But we're not to offer them in order to atone for our sins but rather as a thank offering and as a love offering to the Lord Jesus Christ for his infinite mercy and grace which he has shown to us. Dear friends, it is so easy, it is so easy to pride ourselves in our sacrifices of worship, to look back and say, what a good job we've done, to pat ourselves upon the back, as it were, But if we are looking for salvation in our sacrifices, then we cannot be looking for salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't be looking to both for salvation. It's all or nothing. It is Jesus Christ alone in whom we must be, to whom we must be looking for salvation. If this is the case, if we're looking elsewhere... All our sacrifices are vain, and not only vain, but according to God, they are an abomination, an odor in his nostrils. For God hates, despises, and abominates all such self-righteousness and looking to our sacrifices and to our works as meriting or earning his gracious and free salvation through Jesus Christ. I ask all of you within the sound of my voice today, is your faith... Is your faith in your sacrifices or in Christ's one sacrifice alone? Listen to the word of God from Hebrews 9.26. But now once. Underline and underscore that word. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself even the Lord Jesus Christ. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Thou hast so clearly taught us this day that the sacrifices of the wicked are an abomination unto Thee. Our Lord and our God, we do call upon Thee. In light of this truth, we call upon Thee to forgive us of our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We look to Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. We trust in Him, O Lord our God, and in His righteousness rather than in our own or anything that we can do, or anything that any other person can do for us. We thank Thee, our Father, that Thou hast revealed to us the simplicity of the good news of Christ. Let us not pollute it like muddy, mudding the water with our works, 
Let us not think we can add to our salvation that which is so clearly revealed. Father, we cannot add to the righteousness of Christ. It is perfect in every detail. And that is imputed to us. Let us, Lord God, go forth, therefore, praising thee, thanking thee, that we have been declared righteous in Jesus Christ. That all of our sins, past, present, and even the sins we have not yet committed, have been judicially pardoned by the Lord by by Thee, through the Lord Jesus Christ. O Lord, we this day pray that this truth would fill us with such joy that it would change and alter even our behavior. That, Father, we would uh, refrain from sinning against Thee, that we would sorrow and grieve in our hearts over our sin against Thee. Father, that our hearts would be broken before Thee when we consider the love of Christ for us. And so, Lord, this day, we thank Thee and praise Thee for Thy righteousness and for the salvation that has been won for us. And in Christ, we do place our hope and our faith forever and ever. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, 
as it is well known and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.